Welcome to the High Performance Groundwork Podcast. My name is Hugo Menard, and my guest today is Marie-Claire Ross. She's a trust leadership speaker, facilitator, and coach. She started her career undertaking market research for some of Australia's biggest brands, then co-founded a video production house with her husband, filming live television and creating safety induction videos. During her time leading digital productions, she also wrote the book, Transform Your Safety Communication. Learning how to build business and lead staff became a quest. In the end, she realized video production wasn't her passion. In 2014, she took a leap and started the company Trustology, which helps senior executives, leadership teams, and middle managers build trust within their teams and improve performance. Her latest book is titled Trusted to Thrive, How Leaders Create Connected and Accountable Teams. So welcome, Marie-Claire. Thank you, Hugo. It's lovely to be here. Let's start with the very basics of why trust? Why is that so important? And why did you focus on it? Because even from the the name um, of your company, Trustology, it was there from the beginning. So can you speak of how that started and why it's so important? Yeah, trust is so fundamental to us as human beings. And even though a lot of us aren't conscious of it, we are always looking or searching or or, or reading the signs you could say to see if we can trust those around us and it's really imperative that leaders are aware of when they build trust and when they actually break it and you know when we have teams or or people that trust us in an organization the results speak for themselves so there was a study that was done a few years ago by imperative research and they found that high trust cultures have two and a half times the revenue generation and it's it's not just we you know make more money but you know turnover decreases employee engagement uh, is higher it's it's just what i love about trust is that we all need it. It's it's almost like oxygen, but you know right. we don't even realise sometimes when it's missing and when it's actually causing issues. Yeah, and something now uh, full disclaimer for people listening. I've read some of your book, but not all of it. So th- there may be questions that are answered later in your book. Um, but so- something that you write about is that most of us get to some extent that trust is somewhat important in the workplace and, and certainly your book makes a very strong case for making it very important but then the real question is okay how do you actually go about building that trust so could we begin with sort of uh big picture ideas and then maybe get into more nuanced um, things of how to actually do this yeah well the thing with trust and and what's really pivotal to this is that building trust is is really something that actually works well with our brains so what i actually find really fascinating is that as human beings we are actually scanning the environment we're in subconsciously to make sure that we're safe and we're you know without realizing it we are constantly fearful that you know there's interpersonal risk at play so what i mean by that is that it's this fear that people around us are going to hurt us Uh, and in fact there there are studies that show that when we experience social rejection it lights up the pain network in our brain and that physical pain uh, can take years to get over and it can actually 
that that pain can actually hurt us more than actually a physical injury just that when 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 we're rejected and if you think of your childhood and you know when you're at school and you get rejected or you're not popular like I was um, it takes years to get over and so what's really pivotal to building trust are leaders that are aware of this fear that's driving us all the time and are always communicating either verbally or non-verbally to people that they're safe, connected, and that we all share a meaningful future together. What you were just saying there made me rethink how I was thinking of trust in that I used to think of it as a practice. And, you know, in the book, you, you mentioned the difference. It's not an event. It, it's a practice that you do. But the distinction you just made there, it sounded like trust is more than a practice in that it's a way of being in every conversation all the time when you're at work. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's um, a really good takeout. And that's very much what I feel very strongly about. So, you know, as human beings, we don't trust people who don't care about us. We don't trust people who are more individually focused and so it's really important for a leader to always be signaling that they care about their people and what's interesting is that there was some research that's come up recently now we've all heard about the great resignation and what they're finding is people aren't leaving jobs for better pay or to have more flexible hours you know that might be part of it but the biggest story is that people are leaving toxic workplaces because it's so damaging to us, our health and our well-being, when we can't trust our leaders to do the right thing by us and be there for us. So trust really is, it's just something that we should be practising as part of being a better human being, not just with those that we work with, but also personally as well. Yeah. And just on that topic of, of the great resignation and something that I'm thinking so much about is that for such a long time, there has been uh, a culture where the uh, you know, individual contributors on the front line have been somewhat taken advantage of and that there's been this dynamic of you work for me you will do what i tell you and do you have any thoughts on building trust in in a place where that is still present to some extent it's either still in the atmosphere or there are still the remnants of it even if it's a very good workplace the people have experienced that in other workplaces or their parents have experienced that and it's been there yeah so i do believe that that is one of the biggest causes of distrust in an organization and historically organizations have been led with this command and control leadership style and where we have leaders who feel that they have to tell people what to do because that's how it's always been done but what the research is showing that when we have leaders who really give people autonomy and their own personal agency through asking people questions and empowering people to think for themselves. We get far better results. But it's so common and, and I feel that there are we're getting a lot better at this, but there are still some remnants of this old style leadership that's really um, you know, creating a whole lot of issues. And, you know, when people feel that they're not trusted by leaders or that they're being told what to do and it doesn't actually suit them, it, it can create such massive trust issues that can take ages to shift in, a, in an organisation. What are you noticing 
in terms of the uptake of the work you're doing in terms of when you go into a company and, and help with this? Are people going, yes, I get this, implementing it easily? Or are there things where people think, I get this, but, you know, I, I have this old way of doing about it, or I don't agree with this piece, or, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable doing this given I've done it this other way for so long? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, I've been, I started my company in 20, 2014. And I have to say it was a bad time to start because the, I had so much resistance to what I was doing, literally would be laughed at uh, in organisations. And what I've learned over time is, well, I don't work for companies like that. But uh, the companies that come to me realise it, it's, usually driven by a leader it has to be driven more by the ceo and they want to improve the culture and if it's driven by hr or just one other leader there's not the uptake and i get that resistance uh, but for example i'm working with a, an organization the ceo brought me in and he very much wants to improve safety and trust and we're starting with the leadership team because that's where you start because we really need those leaders to model the right behaviors to everyone else that report underneath them uh, so it's a bit of a process that i take with leadership teams to actually get them to the standard where they're then ready to bring that out to all the people within the organization. Mm. And can we uh, get uh, back to the, the how do you do this? What are some of the uh, practical things? And I, a lot of your book is about the how, so I know we can't go through all of that, <laughs> um, but maybe just a few to get people uh, people's brains going on this. Yeah, well, one of the things that I unpack in the book is the integrated trust building system. And it's really three pillars that leaders need to communicate either verbally or non-verbally. And I say verbally or non-verbally because our brains, because we're subconsciously reading the situation, we need leaders who are signalling that people, everything's going to be okay. And so the three pillars that I talk about are fostering safety. So this is about ensuring people know that they're both safe emotionally and physically. And, and this is really signaling that people aren't going to be injured or bullied at work. And so it's about a leader creating that environment where people know that they can challenge the leader and they're not gonna to get told off that they're learning together as a team, which is uh, sends lovely safety messages to our brains. Mm -hmm. And then the second pillar is connection. And connection is, of course, feeling that sense of belonging so that we are connected to the people in our team, that we want to hang out with everyone. But it's also about understanding the meaning of our work. So in the research that I do in organisations, what I find fascinating is that people want to know how everything works together. So often you'll find organisations have troubles with silos and that's because leaders aren't connecting the dots for people. They're not explaining how the priorities, the projects, the platforms, the products are all linking together and what's fascinating is people actually want to know that they want to know that big picture the vision and the values and how their personal goals actually work with that and so we need leaders who are really good at communicating the meaning of work and how 
not only the individual is benefiting, but how everyone else, else around them is benefiting as well. And that meaning, understanding the meaningfulness of our work is not only so good for our well-being, but it's in, important for intrinsic motivation and productivity. It's one of those things that leaders don't often utilise as much as they could and, and don't realise the absolute amazing benefits from it. And then the third pillar that, that really supports both connection and safety is stepping into a meaningful future. Now, as human beings, we don't trust a situation if it feels uncertain. And so we do actually want our leaders to let us know everything is going to be okay, that the hard work is going to be worth it and that there are rewards in the future. So we need leaders who can paint a really compelling vision that pulls people into that future, into the high achievement zone of their brain, where people can actually see that innovating and working together is actually going to create the rewards that we all crave. And so leaders who get that right create this really beautiful, thriving environment. And, and all these factors are interrelated. You can kind of feel that, you know, if you're going to, you can't feel safe if you don't feel connected to the people that you work with. And you, you're not going to feel connected if you don't feel you're all working towards something that means something. So leaders who can really create this really beautiful environment and communicating it all the time uh, are really missing out on the opportunity to get people into the optimal zone of their brains. I just want to pick up on the connection elements because something I was wondering as I was reading your book is do we have to like the people and get along with the people we work with or is trusting that they will be reliable, that they will communicate clearly with us and so forth, is that enough? And does, does that extra layer of if you do really like them and get along with them, how much of an impact does that have? And I'm not sure if there's been any research on that. Yeah, that's a really good question. So we don't have to like the people that we're with. What's really important, and there is research that backs this up, is that we do feel that, that, that say, a person that we're working with, who we may not like, but if we know that they're very committed to doing the right thing by the customer and to everyone else, then we are more likely to know that we can rely on them because we see evidence of that and work with them. And, you know, you'll often find people that are very different who can work together because they've got that commonality. Mm -hmm. And so really good leadership is about uniting everyone to solve that customer problem so that everyone's working on the same thing. They might be doing it differently in their different areas or, you know, they might have very different personality styles. But you know, it's very hard to really intensely dislike someone when you know their intention is to do the right thing by the customer. But it's frustrating when you're working with people and they're bloody lazy, <laughs> they don't care, um, they're rude to customers, you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, but we, we are more likely to put up with people that we normally wouldn't hang out with if we know they're really committed to doing the right thing and, and that we can trust them to do the right thing by us. I find that so fascinating given, you know, because what that's essentially saying is that intent is really important and so much of the work culture, uh, at least from 
the, the past certainly is I don't care how you get there, you get the outcome. And it's it's almost like flipping that to, to some extent, you know, the outcome is evidently important. But uh, Yeah, and it's, you know, there are a few caveats with that because we do measure, as human beings, we're more likely to measure what people are doing uh, rather than the really important one is how are they doing it, which is really what leaders need to be measured on today rather than just the what, so we don't get that those toxic behaviours creeping in. And then, of course, as human beings, we also are very negative uh, in how we process the world and other people. So we're more likely to assume people are doing the wrong thing and that causes a lot of trust issues as well. Could we dive a bit more into that? Like, if, <laughs> if you want, because I think another layer of that is that we come into work with a whole bunch of baggage of things that have happened in our personal lives and other work environments and all that. Um, and so how, how does that play into the trust and are there things that we can do to help that not be so devastating? Yeah, well, to be honest, this is one of the biggest issues that leaders have and sadly they're mostly not aware of it. So there's a really good book uh, by Dr. Tasha Urich and she did some research and she actually found that 5 to 10% of leaders are actually self-aware. Now, self-awareness is incredibly important for leadership and it is really foundational to building trust with those around us because at some level we actually have to trust ourselves. If we don't trust ourselves and our capabilities and who we are as a person, we tend to, you know, act in ways that, you know, can be, let's just say, antisocial to other people without realising it. <laughs> right, yeah. So it's really important that leaders are self-aware. And in the book, I have a lot of questions to get leaders to self-reflect and think about things. When I do work with a leadership team, I'm always doing work to improve their self-awareness. And so one of the best things any leader can do uh, is to get a coach because a coach or even a therapist, if you've had a really traumatic childhood, uh, honestly just get some therapy because you won't even realize the behaviors that you're doing due to your childhood issues that are causing issues for other people yeah. <laughs> um and it, that can you know narcissism and anyone who's highly narcissistic has you know generally had some sort of childhood trauma and just not dealt with it um, and it causes lots of issues mm. And that brings me to a really interesting thing you mentioned in the book, which is that um, the key to being trusted is to be trusting. Yeah, and it's hard, you know, for some people, if you have had, you know, trust is a lot to do with our subconscious patterning and routines and, you know, what happened to us up until the age of seven. And, you know, for some people, they're very not trusting of those around them and other people are highly trusting. I'm one of those people that, you know, highly trusting and I've had to actually <laughs> do a lot of work to actually not be so stupid and naive and put in boundaries. Uh, but what the research shows and there was some research done by a dude by the name of Dr. Paul Zak, who's got a book called The Trust Factor. And trust is actually measured in the body through the levels of oxytocin, which is a hormone that bonds us to others. Mm. And he found in his research that when we actually extend trust out to people first, 
it makes them feel good and they're more likely to reciprocate it. So it's this, it's got this beautiful virtuous cycle about it. So, you know, very protective people think they have to, you know, see if they can trust people first but you've got to be really careful that you're not doing it in such a way that actually makes people pull back from the relationship um, because it, it can have the reverse effect when we do that if it's not monitored right makes me think of uh, the very first person i interviewed on this podcast she said that she will very um openly give her trust but she sets very clear parameters on how that can be broken and and so it's uh that, that just sounds like a, a very good idea. Um, yeah, it's very important. Like trust is also very much about really having the right communication. So we set those clear expectations, modes of behaviour, what, you know, what we need. Uh, when I start with a new staff member, I do sit down and I have that conversation about what things I expect, how they need to behave, what they need from me and have that really open dialogue and set the right boundaries and I let them know up front what things really annoy me and are going to make me wonder if they're actually working and doing a good job so it's a very important thing that we often miss. Mm. You did a lot of research both uh, you're talking to people yourself and then also reading what others have written and I was wondering in all, and then you, you also tested things out. In all of that, were there things that might seem like a really good idea when it comes to building trust and, and having that connection, that safety, you know, a, a meaningful future that you went, oh, actually, this didn't work? And I suppose another way of framing that is are there common pitfalls or things that look good but actually aren't and hurt us? Yeah, that's a good question. So one of the things that we often fall into is the trap that you build trust through building similarities. And you'll see a lot of trust, uh, people that talk about trust will talk about that. But there's a few issues with that. Uh, and I was a bit shocked because I will naturally, when I meet someone, I will look for commonality and then really leap on that to build a relationship. Uh, but it, it's a little bit superficial and it's also it just what it does is that it means that we tend to like people who are like ourselves and I did I think I, I did actually mention that in the book that years ago I was given a job because I went to the same school that one of the senior directors in the company had gone to uh, and because that was a it's considered a very good school I was given the job, but I was not a good cultural fit for that organisation. But they liked me at the time because I went to that school. So it gave them that sense that, oh, she's like us. But that's really dangerous, particularly now when we're living in a world where we realise that we don't want people that are all the same with the same social economic backgrounds and uh, you know, cultural heritage. Uh, so we've really got to expand that out a bit. And in fact, there is some research now that's showing that uncommon commonalities are actually more important. And uh, the research, and I, I can't remember where it was from, but I know that Adam Grant talks about it, and that who's a Wharton professor, and that is that, you know, people who had this really uncommon thing with their fingernails uh, you know, learning about that, you know, only 3% of people have it, builds trust faster and deeper than just, you know, common stuff like, you know, growing up in the same suburb or 
barracking for the same football team. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And then um, something else was that you said that it doesn't matter uh, who's on. And I think this is something that Google found out was that it doesn't matter who's on the team. What matters more is how they interact. Mm -hmm. And what I'm interested in is one is what happens in a team where there are very skilled people, but the interactions aren't good. And then if you have a team that does interact well, how unskilled can those individuals be before it starts to uh, be unproductive or, or, or the, the lack of skill become very prominent? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I don't think I've got the exact research to back it up, mm -hmm. but there's something interesting that I was reading recently and it comes from the book by Simon Sinek, The Infinite Game, where he mentioned that the US Army actually look at how trusting someone is in their performance. And if you have that on like a X and Y graph, trust and performance, they actually, what they do is the, the, the army realize that you can, you know, we all want the high trust, high performance person. But what they found was that if you have a high performance, low trust person, they're actually toxic and they actually make the worst leaders and are the worst ones to have. It's better off to have a medium performer who's high in trust or even a low performer who's high in trust than the one who's high in performance and low in trust. So you know, it's really interesting what your question is. Uh, and in some ways it taps into what I talk about in my book when you have what's known as the abatement zone, which is where you have a team that is declining in performance but doesn't know it, but they're high in psychological safety and it really needs a leader to steer it in the right direction. Um, right. But and so would that be a leader on those three pillars you mentioned where if they've got the safety, then it would be about a meaningful future to kind of pull that team into the high performance yeah and connection and, and actually more about really challenging people so and moving into that part of the brain where we're more positive about the future we're really clear in the communication and the direction and the expectations and using stretch goals um, rather than just sort of falling into the status quo and just going with the flow or just thinking hey we're We've done really well in the past. We don't have to try any harder, uh, which is what often can happen. So it's I would much prefer a team that's interacting well, because that's actually quite rare. That's not performing as well, but their interactions are, are really good, and they, uh, you know, will look after each other. Because with the right leadership, you can actually pull them out of that into a more challenging zone, which is better for them long term because you know they're going to get bored even if they think they're not. <laughs> right. And so are you saying that it is easier to have a, a team that is that has good communication but poor leadership? It, it is better to get that team to be high-performing than a team that is um, individually skilled but poor communication? Yeah, because it is very hard to get high performers that are very good at what they do to learn to work with others. Like it can be done, mm -hmm. but it takes a lot of work and they have to want to do it. And not everyone does. 
some people are just not suited to working in a team and playing nicely. Yeah. That just blows apart so much of the the narrative of what we're told is uh, important at work. Um, you know, certainly the, the dominant picture that I've had growing up is be the best, you know, individuals, you know, become the leaders and, and that's what's really important. But I, I think it, it sings so much more to our hearts to say, well, actually it's community, it's helping one another. It is. And, you know, I, I do believe, and I see this issue worldwide, that it's a problem with our schooling. You know, it's all about getting A's, doing the best. Uh, and that is important. But the higher you go up in your career, it's more about getting other people to do the work and not yourself. And yet so many leaders really hold on to needing that validation of being the best, doing a good job, and not realizing that those very behaviors can actually be very detrimental to those around them and very detrimental to leading a team. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are you finding that in, in the work you're doing, because I'm assuming that many other people are having the experience that I'm having right now of, well, I didn't realize it was so important and the paradigm that we've had of being the single best person doesn't seem to work as well, but at least not today, of how do we shift that? Because I know that for me, at least, that that paradigm is so deeply rooted that even though intellectually I'm listening and, I'm, and I've read some of your book and I'm going, yep, this, this makes sense, I know that it's going to take a significant amount of work for me to change that paradigm. And so I'm wondering how that is in the workplace where you can have this understanding, but the more deeply rooted behaviours may very well take people just down the same path. Yeah, and this is uh, <laughs> probably what keeps most coaches and uh, business consultants in business, that <laughs> we as human beings uh, you know, can be our own worst enemies and don't even, we, we lack that self-awareness of behaviours that are stopping us from collaborating with others at a higher level. Uh, I mean, I actually think that if we can fix this issue, and that's a very big pervasive issue, it'd stop wars. I mean, it's just that really constant yeah. need to compete and be better and that sense of separation, which is very much driven by our egos. Mm. Um, yeah, well, it, it's interesting that you didn't actually touch on that. Like, yeah, the importance of self-awareness uh, yeah. in that and how you teach everyone that. And when it comes to building trust and the work you do with teams, is there any difference between helping a leader to helping an individual contributor who's on the front line? Are there different strategies or approaches in building trust for both of those people? Uh, yeah, so how I work, I do separate, I have different ways that I work with executives compared to how I work with, say, middle managers and supervisors, because I don't work with the front line, but I, I work with their leaders to give them the right communication techniques. Um, you know, in it, it, some ways you could say it's like building their emotional intelligence, but with the, the more senior they are, and it, it's all variants of the 
same variations of the same theme. It's you know clearly communicating the vision and the expectations. You know maybe down at the supervisor level, it's more about goals and, and communicating those sorts of more day to day tasks. Whereas mm -hmm. as the higher levels, it's it's more about building actually trust and working better with other leaders because that just flows on to all the different levels. Okay, yeah. And I'm just thinking about if there is a leader or a manager or CEO listening to this and they're going, okay, I'll learn more depths about this, but are there things that I could try or begin doing tomorrow? Are there some small tangible things of, you, you know, you mentioned uh, safety, connection, meaningful future. But when it comes to, okay, I'm sitting down at my desk and I'm having that conversation with someone, any small things they could begin? Oh, uh, yeah. So I have lots of tips in my book, um, but it's for a, a really nice one that I like to use is that as human beings, we are always worried about people who are more powerful than us. So when we have a boss, we're worried subconsciously that if we do the wrong thing, they, they've got this ability to fire us and then we're not going to make any money and we're going to be on the street and we're going to die. That's kind of the, yeah. what's going on in our brains. And so as leaders, we want to really reduce that gap to reduce that fear. And so a really nice question that I encourage leaders to use is to ask their direct reports uh, the question, if you were in my role, what would you do? You know, if you had my role, what would you do? Because you're asking, you're giving them permission to let you know what things they would improve. And you're, you're letting them know that you're signaling that you actually think they're smart enough to give you the answer. And as long as you listen, uh, with interest, uh, you know, take action if it needs to be done. But you're respecting them and their intelligence, which then gives them more confidence to challenge you or to actually share with you issues before they become really big because they, they can see that you're present and you're listening. Uh, it's a very powerful technique. Yeah. And I was wondering, as you're saying that, because we have such a top-down, well, at least we've had such a top-down structure for such a long period of time, do you see that that might be shifting given that so much of what I'm hearing is the importance of not having so much power over you and being able to have more independence and autonomy? Would there be a, a structural change that might help that? Yeah, well, I feel like organisations have been working on that for quite a few years now. And it's really about opening up the lines of communication between the frontline and leaders. So I know this sounds a little bit lame, but, you know, even suggestion boxes help or uh, organisations that do employee engagement surveys and give people the opportunity to talk about their issues and then do something about it. It's the doing something about it that becomes really critical because there's no point in asking people to what they want fixed and then doing nothing about it because it just creates more trust issues. Yeah. Uh, but we are seeing, I love whistleblower hotlines, all those sorts of things to really open things up 
because what's happened in the past is that business has always been quite shrouded in secrecy and lifting the lid and being more transparent uh, i love the idea of sharing pay that we're starting to see more of which the government's interestingly been doing for a long time but things like that just you know where we have secrets is where you know darkness and bad stuff can lurk uh, and th- that's the, the real danger. So we, we really want to be able to open things up and people can share what's going on. You know, it's, it's just been fascinating how all these things are coming to light about some of the terrible stuff that's been going on for work in workplaces, you know, sexual discrimination and, you know, pay gaps and all that sort of stuff, which we've put up with so long. We knew was there, but it was kind of hidden and we couldn't quite work out what was going on. But you know, being able to see what's going on and having that visibility so important for our brains and our mental health. Mm. There was one thing that you wrote in your book, and I think this was based on the research of someone else, which really um, made me pay attention, which is that how we communicate is actually more important to business success than what we communicate. Can you explain that? Because my mind can't understand how that's uh, possible. Like if, if there are like real things that need to be communicated, how how is tone so much more important? Yeah, well, this is a really interesting thing. And, and I know there's some old studies around this and I can't remember the exact figures. But, you know, when we when we are talking, people are reading our body language. In fact, we're reading that more than we are listening to the words. And so it it taps into the intention, you know, because as human beings, we, what's so fascinating is that our brains, you know, our limbic system has, you know, processes our emotions such as trust and loyalty, but it has no capacity to understand language. So words in some ways can be a little bit more meaningless. We're listening out and we're watching and observing our leaders to see if what they're saying is matching their actions. We're very good as human beings to knowing when we can't trust someone or something is off when we are looking at how they're speaking to us and their actions. Um, So that's why, you know, how we say it is more important. Right. Mm. And, and just a, a final question on this sort of shift in the, the idea of there being less uh, competition and uh, some of that top down and a bit more cooperation. Uh, you know, you point out that there's uh, the false belief that competition and pitting people against each other will result in better work. Mm-hmm. And so certainly what you've spoken about is addressed, well, the importance of, of trust and how that kind of goes counter to to competition but there are also situations of work where there is a legitimate competition like if there's um a promotion for only one person and so how do we deal with uh trust and connecting with other people when there is an incentive for an individual to do something to get that promotion Yeah, that's a really interesting one, actually. And it really comes down to the behaviours. So 
One of the things that I do teach CEOs is how that they have to make it very clear what behaviours they won't tolerate. And it's in relation to a one firm focus. So it's making it clear that I will reward you if you do things that actually help us you know, solve the customer problem or reach our vision or our values. But if you do things that actually put the organisation at risk or hurt how we help customers, then, you know, this is the consequence. And that consequence might not be getting a promotion. But, you know, the thing is, are leaders aware of these toxic, if, if that competition is resulting in toxic behaviours, then leaders need to be doing the right thing and stopping that. You know, in my research, one of the comments that I remember someone saying to me was, you know, we have this great culture, we have this these vision and the values, well-being is important, yet why does the company keep promoting leaders who are toxic in their behaviours? It goes against all, everything that they're saying about well-being is important when those toxic people are promoted. Right. And so it really is up to the CEO and executives to nip it in the bud and be very clear and very aware of what's going on and to not reward people with promotions if they are treating people badly. Yeah. Okay. That, mm. that was a very good answer. Thank you. Um, we'll wrap it up there. If people would like to work with you, find out more about you, read your book, uh, how can they do that? Where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, you can go to my website, marieclairross.com, and the Marie and the Claire has a hyphen. And I do speaking and coaching and facilitating. And you can find my book, Trusted to Thrive, on my website or also on Amazon and all good bookshops as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Marie-Claire. Yeah, that's been great. Thank you so much for asking such great questions, Hugo. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the High Performance Groundwork podcast. If there's a conversation you believe needs to be had or an idea you believe needs to be spoken about when it comes to workplace wellness and making the work environment joyful, calm, and a place where we feel part of a supportive community, I would love to hear from you. If you run a company and would like to improve the well-being of your staff, you can head over to my website, highperformancegroundwork.com to find out how I may be able to help. And finally, if you enjoyed this, share it around.